0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. Our scripture today is from Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 22. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding for you today for your good. Behold, for the Lord your God, behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt seventy persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades.
1: Endures forever. All right. Thank you, Tiffany. And uh, kids, before you leave, I we have. All right, hang on. This is this is uh, via generation here, but this is Porter Pierre Coleman grandchild, 10th grandchild to Sally and George. So rejoice. He was welcomed into the world on the fall equinox, the uh, 92222, I almost said 02, Uh, 2222. All right, so um, we're excited for Sally and George, and um, that must be an awesome privilege to be their grandchild. Um, I think that would be cool. All right, now kids, now you can get out of here. Uh, we have Elevate today, which is uh, third, fourth, and fifth grade, and second, first. Elevate is first and second. EGC. What did I, did I say? EGC was okay. The kids know where to go. That's right. Good call. We know what we're doing. Shut up, old man. All right. So this morning, uh, sometimes you can be part of a. Uh, we're continuing on in our in our sermon series through Deuteronomy, and, and we're taking a high view. So we're we're gonna we're gonna hit a few chapters this morning. Cover a few chapters, um, but sometimes uh, you can be the answer to a trivia question for the wrong reasons right? Uh, one such answer to that trivia question, 1983, the NFL draft was called the year of the, anybody know? The year of the quarterback. The year of the quarterback, 1983. Uh, and, and the top number one overall pick in that year was my favorite. I've argued that he may get into heaven on stats, uh, but that's not, that's, that's my, I'm not saying that's biblical truth. Um <laughs> But uh, John Elway, who I think would be considered the greatest if he had any kind of cast around him for the first half of his career and didn't have an incredibly conservative coach that didn't let him actually play until the fourth quarter. That's why he's called Captain Comeback. But this is not about John Elway. Um, but I thought that was important for you guys to Uh This is about the number seven pick, with the number seven pick in the 1983 draft, the Kansas City Chiefs Selected the quarterback out of Penn State. Anybody know? Say Steve Kerr. Oh, no. Todd Blackledge. Todd Blackledge, not a bad pick. Um, he had just won a national championship with Penn State. Three-year record of thirty-one and five. Uh, received the Davy O'Brien Award as the best QB in the nation. Threw for over 2,200 yards, 22 touchdowns, and then three more touchdowns rushing, uh, and didn't seem like a bad draft pick. Some thought he would go more in the middle of the round, of, uh, middle of the first round, uh, but but he didn't. But perhaps what Blackledge is most remembered for is who he was picked ahead of. Blackledge would spend most of his career as a backup, five years with the Chiefs, two years with the, who was it, he spent two years with somebody else as a backup, Uh, overall record of 15 and 14. That's not a whole lot. Um, And uh, he was seen potentially as one of the biggest draft busts in history because he was drafted ahead of two of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game, Jim Kelly, Buffalo Bills, and late in the first round, Dan Marino. As for the Chiefs, this would be the last time they would draft a quarterback in the first round for almost 35 years. Until 2017, when they took from Texas Tech Patrick Mahomes. All right, there are stories upon stories of sports, uh, sports stars caving under the pressure, the expectations of being a first round pick, let alone like number one draft pick overall. You probably have heard stories of the busts, right? People that were drafted to be the answer. Um, There can be a lot of pressure under the idea of being chosen in such a high position. A lot of times we have a rosy picture of what it means to be chosen, but it's not always so cut and dry. Sometimes it can be a very, very high calling. Israel had been chosen by God to bear his image among the nations God revealed himself to this people, they were called by him to trust him, to trust what he was doing, that he would provide, that he would protect and establish them. Uh, And all of this uh, in in a pretty rough environment and with a pretty rough history themselves. Um, So what we're gonna look at today really is this high calling of Israel of what it meant to be chosen by God, what it meant for them to be put on display as the people of God, which through Christ then will extend to us in, in our day. Um, and uh, if, you can, if you can make this distinction, we'll, we'll hit this, but if you can make this distinction that we're going we're gonna to focus more today on uh, this call t- toward holiness more, more so than salvation. Okay, so what I mean by that is, this is going to be less focused on what it means to become a follower of Jesus, and more on what it is, what the calling is for, to be the people of Jesus. Does that make sense? What holiness looks like to be, to be called uh, the people of Jesus, what that looks like as a people. Um, So, here's our outline for today. Hopefully that makes sense, and if not, we'll, we'll end up covering both, but Here's the outline for today. Uh, Take the land because of my faithfulness and become my people. Okay? Take the land because of my faithfulness and become my people. Also, just so you know, apparently the update on Apple, now I can't easily get my thing to the iPad, so we're going to do the laptop for a little while. Does anybody care? All right, so uh, we're going to start in, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 10 uh, and uh, verses 12 through 22, but we're actually going to cover Deuteronomy chapters 7 through 10. So we're going to start with this, and now. All right, that's a transition statement, implying that there's a whole lot that's happening before that. So that's what we're going we're to say, and now, and then we're going to jump back a little bit to the beginning of chapter 7. The beginning of chapter 7, the first five verses of chapter 7, God says this, "...when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must, then you must devote them to complete destruction." You shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters and their sons, to take your daughters and their sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me and serve other gods. Uh, If you do that, the anger of the Lord is going to be kindled against you. Uh, I want to kind of give some, um, I want to kind of, I think we can get lost in the weeds on this, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds. Uh, but I do want to give some thoughts because this is, a, this is a thing, right? This is a modern critique against the Bible. I can't believe a God would send his people to, quote, utterly destroy other nations, other people. Has anybody heard that? Sometimes that can cause concern. Sometimes it, it can cause concern in us, and, and maybe it should. Uh, my hope today is, is not to, um, that we're not going to necessarily answer all those questions, but just give us some uh, historical and theological context. Because sometimes when we read this, we can go, you know what, we just need to throw out the, old, the whole Old Testament. We shouldn't even be reading that. Or perhaps maybe even worse, you know what, that's exactly what God said to do and that's what we should do now. <laughs> uh, a total misapplication to the mission of God's people in our day. Um, So I want to take time and give some historical and theological context. And when I'm done with that, you may still have questions. And I want to tell you, that's okay. It's okay to ask those things. But we are in such a reductionistic world where we're just like, God said that I can't even trust the Bible. This whole thing is garbage, and let's throw it out. Um, You you better have a little bit more than that. Um, And one of the reasons why is because one of the main reasons we may question Uh, destroying other nations is because of Scripture. You know that? No other nation in in existence in this time, no other religion, no other ancient religion had any kind of moral grapplings with war and conquest. Even up into Jesus' day, no other nations had grappling with war and and context. They They had issues with don't kill, but it wasn't like from a moral perspective. And so this is, this is, uh, so we're actually questioning it from further down in the book. <laughs> and we look back on that and we have to acknowledge that. Um, no other nation in existence in this time in the ancient world would have had a moral hesitation here. So, uh, so here's some, some rapid thoughts on how do we deal with this idea that God told his people to go and utterly destroy other nations. Um, first, it's important to know, this is not how God always says to deal with our enemies. Okay, so this is not a universal application here. Um, Jesus will tell us, you've heard it said to hate your enemies, but I tell you to pray for your enemies. David goes before God and prays imprecatory psalms on, over his enemies, and some of them get pretty detailed. But he trusts God to carry that out. Paul tells us that in loving our enemies, we will heap burning coals over their head, which is not, telling, is not Paul telling us to heap burning coals over people's heads. okay? Burning coals in Isaiah is refining, so that's important to remember. But Paul tells us to love our enemies. Ultimately, what this is about, uh, this is about God's judgment. It's about God's judgment on these nations. But even there... Even there, we need to have some discernment on what, it, what does that mean? Um, this is God's judgment on the nations that were in the land. Chapter 12 in Deuteronomy, verse 31, says this, you shall not worship the Lord your God uh, in that way, in the way that these nations were doing, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. God's judgment was on their wickedness, on the wickedness in in the land, in the ways that they were worshiping their God. Um, Now, there's a lot to say here on what is God's judgment. What we do need to know is God's judgment does carry into the New Testament. It is Christ who will come to judge the living and the dead. But here what we see is God's judgment carried out through his people in real time. And the reason we see this in real time, God is still making himself known to his people. He has just delivered them out of Egypt. There's some miracles that happen uh, in Egypt when God is making himself known that we should not expect to see in our day. You should not expect nor desire, I think, to walk down to the Mississippi River and expect God to part the waters so that you can walk through. Okay? That is God making himself known. Plus, I don't think we'd want to do that. Uh, leave the bottom of the Mississippi to the bottom of the Mississippi. Um, but this is God making himself known. So these things, their trust in God is going to happen in real time. The reason we have confidence in God's judgment and in God's promises in the ultimate, in the spiritual realm is because we also see Him doing it in real time. Does that make sense? Again, this is not to like, you know, to go so just, just wipe that off your mind, but this is something that we need to understand. Something else that we see in God's judgment on these lands, uh, on these nations is that it was not Israel's righteousness that brought God's judgment against these nations. He says that in chapter 9, verse 4. He actually says this several times in chapter 9. And this is Moses uh, saying this, but he goes, don't say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Uh, we we talked about this a couple weeks ago. You remember Commandment number three: Thou shalt not uh, bear the Lord's name in vain. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. You remember what we talked about that? Don't use God's name, a power, a power and authority for your glory, for your vanity. Um, to presume God's favor even if our glory is in our doctrinal correctness or perhaps in our uh, morals or our positions or our political affiliations or whatever it may be, be careful to presume God's favor on you. Never presume. Well, there's... We see this in when, when Joshua was actually going into the land, right? And he comes up to a, a, the soldier, and the soldier, he asks the soldier, Are you on our side or our enemy's side? And the soldier says, Neither. I'm, I represent the army of God, right? Be careful when we presume that God is on my side or our side. God is quick to humble his people. And, and just a little foreshadow here of what takes place later on down the road is God will actually use these people, some of these same peoples and nations to bring his judgment against his own people because they had forgotten the Lord, because they had started to worship like these nations. Spoiler alert. <laughs> that happens. Um, Job is the first, the first chronological book of the Bible. Job is the oldest book of the Bible. And one of the things, I think one of the things that we learn from Job, the accusation against God is that Satan comes before God and says, you, the only reason your servant loves you is because you've given him stuff. And God says, no, I know the heart of my servant. And he trusts in me. And you can test him. And so Satan goes and tests him. And Job's basic response is, should I accept good from the Lord and not trials? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Guess what? What we find out there, right there, first chronological book in the Bible, God is fit to judge the human heart he knows the human heart he knows us not just our externals he knows our internal motivations he's he is he's good at his job (laughs) he's qualified okay um now one other quick note on this uh those words utterly destroy um wouldn't have been easier if God's like, go in and take them out of the land. Just remove them from the land. They'll go running before you. And that's not what he says. He says, utterly destroy. Um, now, that's certainly going to mean that people were killed. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm not trying to minimize that. Uh, but at the same time, we also have, it, it may not mean exactly what we think. It may not mean like the nuclear button and they just went in and destroyed everything off the planet. And, and, and here's why. Uh, in Joshua, in Joshua chapter ten, verse twenty, when all of this is actually taking place, Joshua, it talks about him wiping out a people and the remnant that remained. So you're like, "Well, wait a minute, did he wipe them out or did he not?" Now, don't go into that going, "See, the whole Bible's a sham." No, 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 no. We just have to understand what what did that what did that mean? They understood clearly what the assignment was. We may not fully understand that. Um, And again, we're going to see these people come up again. So when they went in and utterly destroyed them, it had to mean something besides just eliminate their lineage and total nationhood off the planet, there had to be something else, something to consider. Um, The view of uh, death and the afterlife in the ancient world uh, was interesting. They all had a concept of the land of the dead, and the land of the dead was basically, um, it, it was, uh, it, it's a drab, kind of eternal gray existence, dwelling, like if you've ever seen this betrayed, kind of walking around with your shoulders down, and, and dwelling with, an, with just immense envy for the living. Uh, not totally unlike Kansas. I had to bring, here's the thing, I still have bitterness about the Mizzou game yesterday, and it's going to last for a long time, so I have to take something out on Kansas. All right, so war, um, so when you think about that, that is death, that's the common thing, that's the common view of death, you probably think, well, then they probably are not going to want much war. They'd probably like to preserve life as long as they could, which was kind of true. However, however, kings and rulers had a different view of the afterlife. For kings and rulers, they were partially divine. And their afterlife was largely determined by the scope of their empire, and how big their empire had come. And they would dwell, like ruling over these lands. There was a reward for them. And so they would use the peasants, of course, to increase their land. But when you took over another nation, or when you made a treaty with another nation, you would adopt and, and adapt their gods into your empire. You would bring them in. And in fact, one of the largest empires uh, in, in history, in the Persian Empire, they didn't care who you worshipped. You could worship whoever you wanted as long as everybody was paying, uh, paying in to, to the, the main fund, right? You pay taxes, worship whoever you want but you better pay the taxes, right? Um, And so they would bring the other gods, and that was kind of how you would grow your empire, and you'd make treaties. If you made treaties with other powerful nations, you would adapt and bring in some of their practices and some of their gods. And so what God is saying here to utterly destroy, to tear down their temples and their places of worship, here again is going back to commandment number one. There are no other gods in my council. Don't walk into the land and make treaties with these gods. That's not what's happening here. Don't walk in and adapt these practices that they are doing, thinking that that, that's what led them to power. This is the only practice they had known. Um, And and Moses is going to tell his people over and over and over again, there are no other gods in God's presence. He does not sit in council with other gods. He is not simply the ruler over Israel, which would have been a common thought. He is the ruler over the whole earth. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the websites, all of them. I am the ruler over the whole earth. And again, for God's people to inhabit this land and to bear his image, they're going to have to get this. Because that's the point. The point is not to bring them into this land so that they can gloat over all the other nations or so that they can build their empire. The goal is to put them in here and to give them the law, which we're going to get to in a second, so that they bear the image of this great and powerful and merciful God in the middle of the earth. And to do that, you can't make treaties with the lesser gods. That's not why he's sending us in here. So, for our context today, this is not a call to dominionism at all. But it does give us confidence that God defeats our enemies and that we're not to make treaties with the enemy. That we can have confidence to trust God and God alone and that we ought to be very aware and careful on on, I'm going to say who, but I don't mean who. What ideas that we give credence in our life? What, what, el, what else provides hope, value, and meaning apart from God? We ought to be very aware of those things. Okay, so that's the first one. I wanted to take a little bit of time on that. I, there's, you may still have questions. Yeah, but God still says utterly destroy. Yeah, I, I know, I know, I get it. Uh, but hopefully we have just at least a little bit more context. And if you want to talk about that more, um, let's go grab coffee uh, or uh, send Darden an email or something. Uh, all right. Um, take the land because of my faithfulness. So let's go back and read this, uh, these few verses again here, 12 through 15. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways to love him to serve the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. And the question mark there is because he's he's asking the question what does God require of you? It's not for your good. <laughs> it is for your good. Question is from earlier. All right. Behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and earth, and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Um, so we're in a couple weeks, we're going to get to all of these stipulations. Chapters 12 through 26 are all of these uh, we're going to say laws, but if we, that we, sometimes we hear that as like speed limit and legislation like in our day. It wasn't like in our day. It, it's rules of the covenant, stipulations, our agreement. Uh, we, you can even see it almost like a marriage covenant, the agreements that we came to with the Lord, well, that he came to uh, in, in this treaty together, in this covenant. Um, and sometimes we look at the covenant faithfulness of God, and, and we... Uh, and, and, and the questions we can ask, John Walton addresses this quite a bit, and I, and I think this is really helpful. Is this, um, is this covenant conditional, or is it unconditional? And the answer is yes. And, and, I, and I appreciate this. Okay, God has given Israel an invitation to life. Follow me, trust me, Go into the land, and you will dwell there. Follow my laws and statutes, and you will dwell there. That it may go well with you. God has trained them and disciplined them, testing their faith, testing in good ways to build them up, to learn how to trust and to know that he is more powerful, that he is God, and that he is faithful. And his love for them, the covenant that he made with his fathers, is unconditional. They did not merit it. But is it conditional? Yeah. It is. It is. It is not sweet. I'm in. Now I get to do whatever I want. Um, A lot of times I hear testimonies of followers of Jesus. I walked an aisle when I was 13. I'm good. Have you done anything since then? No. I'm in. I'm good. Um. Is it conditional? Yeah, there's, you can't chase after and put your hope in these other gods and then expect the covenant benefits of the God who rescued you. God reminds his people over and over again that just as in the case of his judgment against the other nations has nothing to do with his righteousness, with their righteousness, uh, neither does God's love and favor toward Israel have anything to do with their righteousness. So it is unconditional. God, they didn't merit this. They didn't earn it. God made a covenant with Abraham that this is what he would do. And then he would form a people, not because they were great, but because he's great. And then God's people are really, really gonna test God's faithfulness. I mean, and if you ever, if you ever look around at Christians today and you're like, oh, God's people Let me tell you something. we got a long track record of being totally messed up, all right? Take some comfort in this. They're just like we are. Chapters 8 and 9 of of Deuteronomy are loaded with stories uh, from Moses uh, that he's delivering in a sermon to God's people about their grumbling and complaining. God delivers them out of slavery, and they get to the wilderness. Like, man, remember how good it was when we were slaves? And then Moses lets them in on a little secret. I don't know if they knew this before, but Moses is like, hey, you guys remember, you remember when I was on the mountain because you guys were too scared to go up there, and so I was getting the commandments of God where he made himself known to me, um, and while I was doing that, the marriage ceremony between God and his people, while I was doing that, remember how you guys were forming a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping that? I had to beg and plead God not to end it right there. Moses goes before God and he's like, I know, I know, I know, but could, could you hold off? Would you relent? Moses was a mediator on behalf of God's people, a theme that will continue over and over again where we ultimately have Jesus on our behalf going, I know, I know, I know, but, but could you relent? Could you hold off? God is faithful to the covenant that he first made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God sets his love on this people. He chose them to be their treasured possession. He didn't love them because they were strong and beautiful, but it's God's love that will make them strong and beautiful. It is the covenant with this God that brings wisdom and confidence and hope and life. And the covenant is made unconditionally. And yet, when God's people worship and make covenants with other gods, they and we will get the agreements and the benefits of that covenant, which is destruction. It's not life. And hear me on this. This is not about keeping every aspect of the law. Jesus is going to do that for us. We're going to, we'll get there in just a minute. But it is about where do you go when you break that covenant? Where do you go when you break those rules? Do you still go before God? He's already put ways of reconciliation in Leviticus before we get here. When we worship other gods, we get the covenants of that, of that treaty. We get the benefits of that covenant, which what God says, it's intrinsic in the deal here. That's death. My covenant is life. Trust me. Does that make sense? It's not about you not messing up. Um, now, as we get into the laws, this is going to be more evident, I think. The law, uh, the, the statutes and rules that God gives in this covenant, there are, there. are it, it is a list of what to do and what not to do, yes. But the end goal is far more than just doing what you're supposed to do and not doing what you're not supposed to do the end goal of these stipulations and these rules um, is, is not as much about what God's people do and more about who God's people are to be. Or who they are to become. and And Some other things with these laws. We're going to go through these in a few weeks. There's some things in there that you're going to see. These are are not necessarily applied universally over all time. There's some that are more grandiose that we go, okay, yeah, this is pretty. But there's some that like, do you boil a goat in its mother's milk or do you not boil a goat in its mother's milk? That, and there's one guy that tries to get away with it by a rabbi that tries to get away with it by grilling a goat but with milk on it so it's not boiled. It's just it's weird stuff. It's not gonna play into our day, I, I don't think. I don't think, I don't know if we even have goat anymore. Um, but uh, some of them are gonna be applied in different contexts in different ways. These, this is not simply an instruction manual of what to do and what not to do. In other words, you can follow all the rules in a wrong way. You can hold a right view in a wrong way. You can also, let me be careful here, hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying, you can hold differing views, maybe less precise views, maybe views that are even some would say wrong, but you can hold it in a humble posture. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And love from a humble posture and a humble heart covers a multitude of sins. Now, before anybody walks out of here and writes a blog about, hey, the pastor said we can just ignore the law. We can do whatever we want. Um, Back down a second, all right? What the rules are designed for is really is not simply to, this is what you do and this is what you don't do. What the rules are designed for is to produce a people that look like and bear the image of God. It is to produce a people that are humble in heart, that care about the things that God cares about, that have experienced his provision, his deliverance, uh, his goodness and his mercy, and, and function in that way. That's the end goal of what this is to produce not just a people who follow the rules. In fact, that was every other religion. You would follow the rules to get things. And the deal with this is this, that Israel finds out being the people of God is a high calling. We're gonna look at this more next week, but I think we have this idea of, um, if I follow Jesus, I'm a Christian, life should be a little bit easier, right? Uh, It should be be better. I mean, we're God's chosen people. Bearing the image of God in in this world is a high and holy and hard calling. And there is a difference between what we would call blessed life and what we would call a charmed life. We're going to look at that more next week. Charmed life is every picture on Facebook is at the beach. Everything is great. Everything is wonderful. They never seem to struggle financially. I don't know if they've ever had a hardship. They're never sick. Everything is great. That's a charmed life. Jesus, I think we would all say, lived a blessed life. And I struggle to think of many pictures of Jesus on the beach. Post-resurrection, there's a beautiful scene on the beach. Okay, Uh, we even see in in the, David, right? David is, this view of like being, being blessed. David looks and says, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That your eyes would even be on us. That's an amazing thought. And then Job is like, why are your eyes on me? Can you look at somebody else for a little while? God is faithful with his covenant, with his people. His calling on them is a high one. But that may not always look like what we want. All right, God commanded his people to take the land because of his faithfulness, that he is faithful to the covenant, to become his people. Verse 16, Circumcise therefore, the foreskin of your heart. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know what, I don't know what they heard. When, when Moses said that, right? This is Moses, this is the application of the sermon. And I would imagine there's probably a bit of confusion when Moses says that. Uh, put that aside. Uh, Be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes, just, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So, love the sojourner. Because remember, you were sojourners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you will swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great and terrifying things that you've seen. And remember, your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons. And what has the Lord done? He has made you more numerous than the stars in the heavens. Moses gets to the application por- portion of his sermon here and, and um, circumcise your heart piece. That, that is more about the internal motivation than simply the external practices. God's about to bring his people into the promised land and again, not for their victory, not for, so that they could gloat, but so that they could bear the image and the mercy and the justice of the Lord Most High. God made a covenant with his people uh, that to, to Abraham, that his people would be more multiplied than the sand on the shore. God brought them into Egypt and into slavery. It was his miraculous deliverance into Egypt that made Egypt a powerhouse. And then they enslaved uh, Israel. And, and we see the redemption of that here, that they would remember often what it was like to be slaves. And so don't ever do that to another people, Israel. God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and he would defeat seven nations larger and more powerful than them so that they would learn that it's God's authority and God's power, not theirs. God would take them into the wilderness for 40 years so that they would learn to trust his provision. And all of this is to produce a people at the center of the known world at this time to bear witness to this great and mighty and merciful God who wasn't like the other gods, who you couldn't bribe. You can't bribe this God to give you favor. So don't pervert justice by being a people that can be bribed. This God would show mercy to those who are on the outside the foreigner, the sojourner, Israel. Please don't forget that you know what it's like to be the outsider and the slave and the sojourner. And when, when, not if, when you take possession of this land, don't pervert or distort justice for power or wealth or influence. Don't be a people filled with self-righteousness when you know it was my righteousness that raised you up and brought you here, not yours. It was my faithfulness. Don't be a people with a lust for power when it was my power that removed these nations out before you. And don't become a people who just follows the rules of the land as if your God had not shown up and done miraculous things for you. So, followers of Jesus, um, today, be careful lest we look on that and go, I can't believe those people. Jesus would be what Israel was supposed to be. Jesus would be faithful to the covenant. He would do what we were called to do. He would fulfill this perfectly. He is the example of what God's people are to look like. And also, he is our savior. He is the one who fulfills the covenant on our behalf so that we can be reconciled with God. The ultimate goal here, what Jesus did not do is to come down to preach how to get to heaven when we die. What Jesus did is he came down and he called people, follow me. Put your hope in me. Follow me. That we would grow and bear his image when our hope and trust are in him. When he has conquered our nations of sin that are before us, that it no longer stands against us, but he has conquered this. that in following him, we would be a foretaste of this kingdom come. And it is a high and holy and hard calling. So what are followers of Jesus to look like in our day? To remember that our standing before God is not because of our righteousness, it's because of God's righteousness. So who are you? Oh, follower of Jesus, to be self-righteous. To somehow think that you're better than somebody else. That we were once sinful, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and it was Jesus who reconciled us. To remember that we were outsiders. This is not our story. This is Israel's story. We were outsiders. And yet, what Paul tells us in Romans is somehow we've been grafted in. So now this is our story because of what Christ has done. So be careful lest you forget outsiders. That God through Christ welcomes us, even us, to his table. This is a good one. That it is God who judges the nations. Guess what that means? We don't have to. (laughs) We don't have to pronounce judgment. We can certainly say, "What does God require us? What does God require of us? What does God call us to?" But we don't send one person to heaven or hell. And when we do judge, we judge humbly, considering where we were and what Christ has done, dealing with the log in our own eye first. That all we have is God's provision. One of my favorite Simpsons lines is when Bart is sitting at dinner and they ask Bart to pray, and he said, God, we worked hard all week to earn money to pay for this meal, so really, thanks for nothing. Yeah, that is one of my favorite lines. Because I feel like sometimes we do that, we just, Bart has the courage to say it. Um, that all we have, and I've said this before, how many, how many breaths did you concentrate on this morning? taking? God actually designed our bodies with that as an automated, like, response because we couldn't think of that all the time. I um, remember the exercise programs. I'd always say, "Don't forget to breathe." What if we had to navigate life like that? All right, sorry. That we're not to chase after wealth. That we're not to favor the wealthy and the powerful. We don't cozy up to the nations that God's about to remove and pervert God's justice, but to turn our eyes toward those who are big deals in God's economy. The lowly, the widow, the outsider, the poor. And who are we ever to presume God's favor? Who are we to ever say, well, God's on my side. Be cautious, I think it was Lincoln that said, maybe we shouldn't ask if God's on our side, maybe we should see what's, maybe we should. Say, are we on God's side? So, what do, what do Christians look like? What's our testimony? What is our defining characteristic, uh, our posture before the world? And this, and this is what I want you to think about this week. This is your homework for this week. What ought Christians to look like in our world? What testimony do we bear? And I think we and and me I think our defining characteristic ought to be this. We are a people who knows, who know what it means to be greatly forgiven and greatly loved. And that we are wrestling that out. That we are finding that deeper and deeper and deeper. That, that we don't deserve to be in the presence of God. But somehow, miraculously, by God's grace, this is where we find ourselves. Glory be. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I sometimes, it, I well, maybe oftentimes it would be easier if you would have just given us a list of rules. Do this, and you're good. Don't do this, and you're bad. Um, And full confession, there's often times where I'm tempted to just turn this into this. Instead, what you do is you give us a story of your greatness and your mercy. You give it in real time. You give it throughout time and history. It's slow and patient of your grace and mercy, but also of your righteousness and your holiness. But you, you are calling us to get caught up into... This greater kingdom, to bear witness to all of that, your righteousness, your justice, and your mercy. To find ourselves a part of this story, receiving grace when we don't deserve grace. So I I pray this morning um, that our hearts are humbled. Uh, but grateful. And maybe, maybe we need to, um, maybe there's a measure of repentance of, these are the gods that I am seeking after. And I want to turn from those. Maybe it's my kingdom that I'm always seeking after. And to turn from that and to seek your kingdom. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, make Yourself known in our minds and our hearts and do the work that there's no possible way we could do. Bring us from death to life. Help us to pursue You, to know You and trust You, and to bear Your image well. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.